Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning, everybody. As you heard at the very beginning, we have an amazing guest speaker, James Bustamante, is with us today. We actually created this series, mini series, around a conversation that I had with him where he was telling me that his area of study is Jesus and women. And I was like, we just need to get you up front. We'll carve out a mini series so that you have a chance to teach. Um, and so we are blessed to have him here. And just so you know as well, like there might be perspectives if you heard Miss Mary teaching last week. I would encourage you that if, if what is brought to you is a new way of, I mean, this isn't just for this text. It's for any text. And if somebody brings a text to you where it's like, I've never thought about it that way. That makes me uncomfortable. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's off. Very often when we are growing, there are growing pains. And so if that is happening, I would encourage you go to that person and talk to them, open up and say, Hey, I've never thought about that text that way. Can you point me to where you found that? And let it turn us not into a place where we fight against everything that we don't immediately agree with, but that that turns us back to the text. It turns us back to look deeper at scripture, that it turns us to actually look into it. And so I'd encourage you, if that is what you feel as we go through this, that um, you would embrace that challenge of actually taking your concerns back to the text and into community as well. And so I don't want to take up too much time because James, I'm sure, has plenty to say. So let's <laughs> hand it over to him. Hi. Uh, Ryan has been very generous with the introductions lately, so no pressure, right? I don't, like, I, I don't, I don't want to, after the end of this talk, be kicked off the all-star team. So I, I just don't want to. But, you know, uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be a part of this series. Um, me and my wife, Roberta, uh, we're usually we're in the back doing production. She's in the back doing it now. Um, uh, we've been here since 2018, and um, one thing about speaking in your community is that you're speaking with family, and you're talking with your friends, and all we're doing is having a conversation. And I'm, I'm, the, today, the, the woman that I'm going to be talking about means a whole lot to me. She literally changed my spiritual life and might have had a part in saving it. Um, her, um, it's the woman with the hemorrhage found in Mark 5. And if you know anything about her, uh, the story is kind of simple. She, um, she, she's had uh, this bleeding, this hemorrhaging for 12 years. And she has tried everything. She has spent all her money on physicians, um, trying to get better, trying to find a remedy. But she just gets worse. And she... I would guess she's at the end of her rope. 12 years, constant bleeding, constant suffering. Um, there are so many things weighing against this woman. And the word that when I first re-encountered her um, was desperation. Have you ever felt desperate? 
are you, I mean, are you desperate now, maybe? And desperation looks different to all of us. And for me, when I was reintroduced to her, I was very desperate. I, my, my life, I, uh, I just, my spiritual life, I didn't, I, I've had bad anxiety since I can remember. And there were days where I would wake up and I would say, I, I don't know if I can do it today. And I went to the scriptures, and it was one of those moments where you said, God, this, this is it. I need you now. Not, not in the next second, not in the next minute, not in the next hour. I need you right now. Please point me to something, show me something that I haven't seen so I can, I can make it through this day. And uh, I, was in, uh, I was in my PhD program, and I had a whole other endeavor that I was studying. And I picked up Mark 5, and I started reading the Gospel of Mark, and I hit her story, and I said, wait, wait, wait a second. I went back, I read it again, and then I read it again, and again, and again. And something clicked, and I said, Lord, I have to know everything about this woman. She's simply amazing. And she matters a whole lot to me, and by the time we're done talking, I hope she'll mean a lot to you, too. And so her story, just basically a basic breakdown is that um, her story is found in Mark 5. It's also found in Matthew 9 and Luke 8. But, Math, but Mark chapter 5 has the most details about her story. And so her story is actually sandwiched between uh, the story of Jairus and his dying daughter. Do you know that story? You, you remember that story? And so uh, Jesus, is, and for quick context, Remember, uh, starting in Mark 4, verses 34 and 41. Remember, uh, Jesus, he is, um, he's on a boat with his disciples, and a storm hits. And throughout this whole context, Mark 4, uh, going into Mark 5, there are storms. There is chaos. There is desperation littered through this account. And Jesus calms them all. But it is the story of this woman, it's the account of this woman who has the faith that nobody has. She has the faith that the disciples are supposed to have. She has the faith uh, in the episode of the Guaranteeing Demoniac that we'll cover real quick, that when the townspeople find out that uh, Jesus has healed this demoniac who's had a soul storm, a storm in his soul, the townspeople, instead of coming to faith, they become afraid and they ask them to leave. And then you have the account of the hemorrhaging woman, and then you have the account of Jairus and his daughter. So Jesus is coming back to the east side, to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as he hits the sea, the, the seashore, this mob hits him. So this, this village that he was in probably had around 1,000 people. But uh, it, they probably wouldn't have been all on the seashore. But there's, there's a big group. There's a couple hundred, possibly. And then there would have been, they live in an honor and shame society, so they would have came up, there would have been a meal, there would have been conversation, maybe some foot washing. And Jairus, who has a desperate plea, says, my daughter is dying. Please come save her. And so he rushes, he cuts through all this, um, this, these people, and Jesus agrees, says, sure, I'll come with you. So they start walking, and in comes this woman. Now I have to... In the time I have, I want to just, this, this, this is all about her. 
And I want to give you as many details about her life as possible. So uh, we get the context of her uncleanness in Leviticus 15, right? So anything, she, she's been on her menstrual, she's had menstrual bleeding for 12 years and it hasn't stopped. So anything she sits on is unclean. Anything she lays on is unclean. Anything that, uh, any, anybody who touches anything she sits on will become unclean. Anything, anyone who touches, anything she touches basically is unclean. So when, when the, in, a, in a regular menstrual cycle when a woman in, in Leviticus would end, it would take seven days to become clean. But as long as she has a discharge, she will be rendered unclean until it stops. And it has not stopped for 12 years. And so with this uncleanness brings many, many consequential implications. Financially, religiously, personally, and socially. Financially, she is in ruins. She is broke. She has spent everything she has to try to get better. Socially, she is marginalized and cast to the side. So in her story, we can have this intersection of oppression and marginalization and desperation. Personally, she, in, this, in the account, she has no family to speak of. She has no advocate to speak, to speak up for her. She has no one to go on her behalf like Jairus' daughter has. The, the plea of a desperate father. She has no one to go up to Jesus and ask, will you please heal her? She has to figure out a way to get to him herself. And religiously, she is barred from the temple. She is barred from the synagogue. And so she, you know, and, and there's also Roman superstition in the Greco-Roman world that existed in this time. And we don't know how how spread it was or how, how uh, followed it was, but there was all these things that uh, a, menstrual, a menstrual woman could turn new wine sour. It could make a dog's bite poisonous and make them insane, make them crazy. There were all these, these terrible, terrible superstitions that may have added to her plight. Everyone in the village would have known about her. Everyone would have known she was unclean. I mean, 12 years, I, I imagine her condition her appearance, um, it's, it would be quite a sight. And so she, in her uncleanness, in her brokenness, in her isolation, hears that a great healer is here, hears that Jesus is here. And this is where her story takes an amazing, courageous turn. She shows tremendous risk Tremendous risk to try to get to the one who can save her, who can cure her. She must try to get through this crowd. And I imagine someone who has been bleeding for 12 long years isn't walking briskly. I imagine she's limping. She may have been crawling. A lot of images, a lot of uh, mosaic art shows her crawling and reaching out to touch him. So she says she makes a decision. She says, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And so she sets off. And what I am inviting us to do right now is, if you will be willing to walk with her, can we walk with her? We are walking after the Savior. And there are many of us, perhaps all of us in our own ways, walking after the Savior now.
in desperation, maybe in isolation, in sadness, in sorrow, knowing that Jesus is the only one who can relay a healing touch on us. So we walk. We walk with her. And she touches him. She gets through this crowd knowing that if she, whoever she touches on the way, she will render unclean. And with this, this is a tremendous risk because if people find out that she is here in the crowd touching them, she can be in, in a whole other world of hurt. She could be banished from her village, kicked out of her society, perhaps even worse. There are some traditions that said she may have been stoned if she was found out. But she's taking a very tremendous risk by herself in a patriarchal society that was unkind to women in general, but to women like this, I, I can only imagine the consequences she would have faced if she's caught. And so immediately, immediately, she feels this blood flow stop. And the interesting thing is, is, is at the very same time, Jesus feels power leave his body. Now, I, I, when, when, we, when, I, when I would read that word touch, I go, well, what's special about this touch? There's got to be something special about this. Because remember when he, he stops and he turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples, they're like, well, you know, you're in a big crowd. That everyone's kind of touching you. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, why you're asking that. But we know Jesus, right? We know Jesus knows things that others don't. He knows things supernaturally somehow. But we know how he knows it. But there's no, there's no account in the text that tells us that he knows who touched him. He just says, who touched me? I happen to believe he knows. And he wants her to come forward. He wants her to be seen. So, um, that, so that word touches, you know, sometimes, you know, the disciples have an idea that, no, everyone's touching you. And that's not what Jesus is asking. What Jesus is asking here is who touched me? Who grabbed me in such a way, with such a faith, with such a desperation, that I couldn't help but honor that faith? So there's touch, and there's touch. And so she, realizing she's not going to get away with this, she's not going to be able to walk away and not be seen. So she falls at his feet, trembling and afraid, saying, I touched you. I reached for you. And he goes, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And so you read that account, it's the simple nine, it's simple ten verses. But when you really go into the context, you really go into this woman's story and what, she, what it took for her to get there. I said, that's it. In my time with Desiree, I said, that's it, Lord, that's what I needed. I said, I need to reach for you. And I don't, I don't need to, not only this, just praying, but just this desperate, you are the only one that can save me now. And in, G, in this woman's case, she knew 
she, like Jairus' daughter who was on death's door, who was dying, she's also dying and needs to be healed just as bad. Jesus was willing to heal two daughters that day. And she, with, with, the, with this pronouncement of daughter, she is restored into a community that was always hers. It always belonged to her. But by, by these rules that cast her aside for 12 years. You know, we, we went through this pandemic and, and there is a rise in anxiety and fear. And it was hard to be away from loved ones for a year there's no one for this woman for 12 years and so when I finally got how incredible this woman was I scrapped my entire doctoral course and I said I must I must thank her I must show her I must do my part to honor someone I've had many many women Spiritual, spiritual giants in my life. My mother, Roberta, who have held, who have been a rock for me when I, um, I didn't know if I could see you the next day. Now, I don't mean to, to sound like, like, like I was suicidal, or, but it was, it was, a, it was a desperation that I've never, I had never felt before. And when I needed something the most, I saw that in this woman. I remember I mentioned context, right? So if you can come back to me, with me to Mark 4 real quick. And Jesus and the disciples are on the boat. They're going to the east side of the, uh, the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's, it's unclean. Um, remember, this is where the garrison demoniac is. But before they get there, a storm hits. And the disciples become deathly afraid. And in Jewish thought, the, the, the ocean water, the storm, it signified chaos and evil. And they desperately pleaded Jesus, do you not care that we are sinking? And in, the, in some translations say, do you not care that we are dying? And the First Nations version, which is indigenous translation in the New Testament tells us, it says, do you not care that we are fighting for our very lives? And that's what desperation can feel like. Is that you are fighting for your very soul. That you are fighting to just see the next moment. And Jesus is asleep on the boat. He's just resting on a pillow. And he gets up and he tells them, he tells them, he, it says, the text says, he rebukes the ocean. And he says, be still. Some translations say, he tells the ocean to shut up. Shut up. You're bothering them. And he calms the sea. He calms the chaos. Now, I know the disciples in the, in the Gospels, they get a bad rap sometimes. Like, they just don't get it. And they don't. They don't get it until Jesus' resurrection, to be, to be honest. But... I don't know, by this time, they, they've been with him for a little bit. They've seen him, but they've never seen him do something so explicitly that God could do, was to calm chaos in nature, in the seas. And so they, instead of having this faith, 
this, this, this building of faith, they become afraid. They're afraid. And they say, who is this that even the seas and the waves obey? And, they, and, and when, you, so when you take a, a, a step back, you sense that there's a little failure on the disciples' part. That it should have grown in faith, and it didn't happen. And so they get to Gentile territory where the garrison demoniac is. And this demoniac is in a pretty desperate situation. There's a storm going on, but it's just different. It's the storm inside. It's the storm of the soul where it's raging in him. And it's the most graphic account of an exorcism that we have in the New Testament where he could have one to possibly 6,000 demons residing in him. Remember, because the, the demon, they had Jesus ask him, what's his name? He says, my name's Legion. Legion, because we're many. In, in, the, in, the, in the First Nations version, translated, it says, we're named, we're named many, because we have numbers. Boy, do we got numbers. Uh, but, of course, that's not going to phase Jesus, right? So Jesus cast them out, and there's the whole deal with the, the, the pig herders and the pigs running into the ocean, running into chaos. If the sea signifies chaos, then you have these pigs running back into the chaos, these demons. And another storm is stilled. Another event of chaos made peace. And then the, 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 the demoniac is now sitting in his right mind. He's rightly clothed. And then the townspeople come, and they're told everything that happened. And they don't come to faith. They freak out, and they tell Jesus to leave. And so here again, we have a failure of not finding faith and giving in to fear, giving in to desperation. And then that account, we're coming back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, back to Jewish territory. Jesus, as I said earlier, gets on the seashore, is mobbed by this village, and then you have the plea of a desperate father. And drops, a synagogue leader drops to his knees and says, my daughter is dying, my daughter is dying. Can you please do something? All you need to do is come and touch her. And, show, and so they go on their way, and then this wonderful, magnificent woman makes her appearance. With all her uncleanness, the only identity she has is her shame. She is unnamed and unable to approach Jesus face to face. So she says, I will get to him however I can get to him. I just need to touch his, touch his clothes and I'll be healed. And so this woman, despite the failures of the disciples, despite the failures of the townspeople to come to faith, she does what they don't do. She has in mind that she has the faith that she, well, this one, this person can make me whole, can heal me, and I will go to him. 
And I said, that's what I must do. So I step out from reading the text. And I say, Lord, that's what I must do. I apologize. Forgive me for seeking anything else but you. Because even if the whole world turns away, I will stay with you. Because you have touched me before. And you will touch me again. Where else will I go? Where else will we go? But to the one who has the words of eternal life. The one who can restore the, to wholeness. The one who can repair the broken. And I was like, I, how, can I, how can I know more about this woman? So I read everything that was, that was ever written about this woman. I, of course, that's not true. It's a grand exaggeration. But I got my hands on everything I could. Her reception history, going back to the church, followed everything. And for women who were treated the way they were in the first century, she's actually quite revered for her faith example. Uh, Martin Luther, who's had his issues, had high praise for her. Many of the early church fathers who had their issues, they had kind words for her as well. And so as we walk with her, what kind of desperation do we bring? And what I hear Jesus telling us is that if you're in your desperation, please do not ever believe that your desperation has to become despair and lead to total brokenness. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus tells these wonderful parables about uh, the mustard seeds and the yeast. And he says, the kingdom of God is going to be like this seed. You can't, I mean, uh, there are those who you use it as a prop and you can't really see it. If, you, if I were to hold the seed in a baggie, you wouldn't be able to see the seed. But he says, once that seed is in the ground, it becomes a tree where the birds can come and nest in its branches. And then the kingdom of God is also like yeast put into dough. Where once you put yeast in the dough, the bread can't help but rise. You can't stop it from rising. So when I see, when I read these two parables in tandem with this woman, I hear Jesus telling me and telling us, don't, wherever you find yourself now, don't give up now. Don't give up hope now. Because the seed, the seed's planted in the ground. And that yeast, that yeast is in the dough, and that dough's going to rise. And sin will be overcome, and the curse will be overthrown, and we will be redeemed. It's just a matter of time. Just have faith. Just reach out and touch. And I, and, I, and, I, and I hear this question again and again in my head. Will we, as a church family, will we, no matter what, without reservation, without hesitation, will we strive to always, in whatever situation we find ourselves, reach for our Lord? The one who has promised to set everything right and to dry every tear. And there's one 
other aspect of this story that it can get a little touchy. No pun intended. No pun intended. Sorry. Um, and Jesus works a miracle in this woman's life. And we've all prayed for miracles, right? We've all prayed desperate prayers. If you're not desperate now, and, and I'm, I'm so glad if you're not, I mean, if you're in a great spot right now, praise the Lord. But if you are, and like I said, desperation looks different for everybody. We know what it feels like to have prayers go seemingly unanswered. And that has kept me up at night, just speaking with God, with our God, right, in the darkest, in the, in, in the, in the silence of the night. And I don't understand. And I, and I believe that this text, it describes what happened. It doesn't describe, prescribe what happened. But then that also reminds me of another great story. Remember that story in Daniel, chapter 3, of King Nebuchadnezzar and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace? Where King Nebuchadnezzar builds this really giant gold statue of himself, and he says, at the, at the, the sound of the music, I want all the people in the land to drop and bow down to this, uh, this statue and worship me and my gods. And these three say, not going to happen. And so the king gets word and he brings them, those three there, and he goes, Will you? I've heard that you're not going to do this. Is this true? And he goes, Yes, we will. He goes, You know, king, and the words, the incredible words. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, know this that the God that we serve will save us from your furnace. And this next, the next sentence floors me. Even if God chooses not to, we will not bow down and serve your gods and worship your image. And he's not too happy about that. So he, so he orders the furnace seven times hotter and orders his men to throw uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in. And it's so hot that the soldiers who throw them in get killed, get, get burned in the fire. Except they're not burning. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, well, didn't, I could have sworn we just put three men in the fire. I see four. And one looks like the son of the gods. But the incredible thing about, oh, I mean, another incredible thing about that story is that I'm not so sure that Meshach, Sadrach, and Abednego knew the fourth guy was with them. King Nebuchadnezzar could see them. But those three, it says that they were all unbound and walking in the fire. But there's no hint in the text that they knew this fourth person was in there. Even if God chooses not to, we will serve God alone. And that has been a challenge to me and for me ever since I learned to try to up, walk upright in the kingdom. That James, you can pray in your, in your desperation and in your faith, come to me with all you have, but am I enough for you? 
Is Jesus enough for me, for us? I know there are many brothers and sisters praying for a miracle right now, and I and I would I petition God, God, just answer them. Just do it. You know, heal that person. And I don't know, I can't say why. I can't, I don't, I'm not gonna pretend it's act to the, I'm not gonna dive at, I'm not gonna try to make up something to tell you why, like I know why. But I do know that God is good and God is faithful. I felt it, I've seen it, I've seen it in others. So, to be able to walk, there's one big, huge part of the woman's story I can't relate to. But I can relate to that desperation. I can relate to wanting to walk, limp, crawl, and touch the one who can heal everything. So I implore, I beg, I plead, all of you church family, that if you are ever feeling like that, if you're feeling like that now, do not do this alone. Reach out. Touch the Savior. Reach out to others. I beg you, don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Psalm 102, and I, and I cry out, Lord, hear me when I call. Don't turn your face from me. Answer me quickly, speedily, please. We all know that, right? We all know that prayer, right? I want you to know that even if answers don't come to any of us anytime soon, that we are for one another, that we are here for one another, that we bear each other's burdens, and like I've said already, burdens and desperation looks different for everyone. And I asked what it may look like for you. For Jairus, it was the, the plea of asking the one who can heal him to heal her daughter. And another great thing about that, that, that story real quick is that when, 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 when a woman interrupts Jairus, and Jesus walking to his daughter. You know, I imagine Jairus is pissed off right now because this woman's miracle has cost his daughter her life. And you could sense the grief starting to build. And Jesus turns to him and says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Just have faith. And the interesting part of that word is that it's the same root in the Aurelian language in the Greek that, that is used for the woman in verse 34. But, and you, your faith has healed you. And he tells this named, upscale, rich synagogue leader who probably had uh, uh, was well off, have faith like this unnamed woman. Have the faith of this woman. Because when Jairus Jairus' men come and announce to him that, she, that your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. Don't bother the teacher anymore. The woman's right there, restored. You see this woman right here? Have that type of faith. 
that risk that reaches out, that goes after me no matter what, that doesn't care what anybody else thinks, who says, I'll be damned if I'm in this situation one more day. I'm going to reclaim my status and my restoration. Desperation can look like a daughter pleading, I mean, a daughter being restored finally. And desperation can look like a father pleading for the life of his daughter. And today, there's desperation everywhere in this world. And when Jesus, and remember in John, it, and when you read John, it, this is great comparison. So the, the main, one of the main comparisons in my gospel is darkness and light. Who's to say Every one of us, with the faith we have, can be the light in someone else's night. You can be that light. We can be that light. All it takes is faith, the size of a mustard seed. And I could, I could go on talking for her, talking about her for hours. But um, I hope that as we've walked with her, that I've, I've shown just how important she can be in finding genuine faith and not giving in to despair even when we find ourselves in desperation. So uh, we're going to call up those who are serving communion. Um, and we do this in remembrance of the Savior. And I pray that every time we come and take this, that we remember, we take this as a corporate body. We take it with one another. Don't ever be afraid to reach out and touch the one who gave his life for us. So I just like to say a quick prayer. Dear gracious God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for community. Thank you that we don't have to do this life alone. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.